0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, June 28th, we're studying Acts chapter 24, verses 1 to 27. After Paul's transfer from Jerusalem to Caesarea, his case goes before Felix, the governor. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor James Preuss. Pastor Price serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Price, welcome back Thank to you. Sharp Read. As we get started today, Pastor Price, let's talk context. What should we know as we prepare to look at Acts chapter 24 today?
1: Well, you've already mentioned uh, that Paul has been sent to Felix. So uh, I guess going back a few chapters, Paul goes to Jerusalem. This is something that he was talking about for quite a while. Uh, he wants to bring aid to the Christian Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, and when he gets there, he, uh, has, he he's brought up with the problem that there are those who are accusing him of being against the law of Moses. So he ends up paying a vow and participating in a vow for some Jews who are there. Uh, and then he goes to the temple uh, for, uh, for, uh, uh, as part of this rite. And uh, when he's there, he gets arrested. He gets brought before the tribune. He brings uh, Paul before the council when he hears that this is a religious matter. Uh, And then Paul kind of turns the two sides against each other. So within the Sanhedrin, you have the Sadducees who do not believe in angels or the resurrection or the afterlife. uh, uh, And then you, you have the Pharisees. And he says, you know, I'm really on trial here because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead, because he believes that Jesus rose from the dead. And that causes this great big conflict. Uh, so then this this splits the Sanhedrin. So it goes from having these this group that has Pharisees and Sadducees competing with each other. Uh, and then it's pretty much the Sadducees uh, who, uh, under the, the leadership of uh, high priest Ananias, who then plan to uh, kill Paul. So you have these 40-plus men who make a vow saying that they are going to not eat or drink until they kill Paul. They're going to ask to question Paul again, and then when Paul is on his way to be uh, to be interviewed again, they're going to kill him. Well, Paul's nephew hears about this, and he spills the beans uh, to Paul, who then sends him to, uh, to the, the tribune, uh, who then... Uh, sends a letter to Felix who we meet in this chapter and uh, in, in, in uh, the Tribune's letter, his name is Claudius Lysias, uh, in his letter, he says that, you know, there's no reason to put Paul to death. There's no reason even to imprison him. This is just a religious matter, uh, but his life is in danger. So he sends him to Caesarea, uh, which is about 55 miles away from Jerusalem. And he's hoping that Felix can take care of this. Felix, of course, would be of much higher rank than the Tribune. The Tribune is a commander of about a thousand troops. Uh, and Felix is the governor of Judea. Uh, so that's what we we pick up here. And we pretty much get a glimpse into a courtroom scene in uh, first century uh, Judea and in, in, in Rome. Uh, Felix is... Of Greek uh, background, uh, I read that he was actually—he's thought to have been a freedman, which means that he uh, was a slave at some point and became free. Uh, and he—he I mean, he has a Wikipedia page, so this isn't—this is one of these things that's kind of uh, uh, neat for us Christians. <laughs> that, that's great. Uh, this isn't some—you know—you you'll hear stories like in the Old Testament they'll say, did David actually exist? Did this king that he defeated exist? Did this person exist? And then you'll find uh, there'll be artifacts to say, well, actually, yes, uh, these kings were mentioned. Uh, this king did serve, at did rule at this time. Well, uh, Felix was actually uh, governor of Judea. Let's see if I can look at the dates from uh, 52 to 60 AD, which is also helpful for dating when this happens with Paul, uh, because we know that he stays in custody of Felix for two years before uh, Por- Porcius Festus uh, takes over. Uh, so we actually know when this happened. This happened in the spring uh, of, of 58 AD, uh, shortly after Pentecost.
0: All right, so let's, with that introduction, let's take a look at the courtroom scene that we see in Caesarea in Acts chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. I'll pause there. That takes us through verse 9 of the text. That's the, the accusations against Paul. Paul will speak in his defense in the text to come. Pastor Price, uh, remind us of, we, we talked a little bit about Felix already. He's the one before whom this trial is taking place. Talk about the the prosecuting side. We've got Ananias the high priest, Tertullus, and then what Tertullus says against Paul.
1: Yeah, uh- well, Ananias, what's interesting about this, Ananias doesn't actually really speak here. We have uh, Tertullus, and Tertullus is pretty much a hired uh, he's a lawyer. I mean, he's he's hired to be an orator to give the case before uh, in a court. And uh, the, the way he starts out, this is kind of a typical way of addressing a political figure or a judge or someone who has a, a lot of authority, and we even see that a little bit of this i I'm not going to say it's in the same way because uh I think the way Tertullus goes is kind of disgusting, but we we do see this kind of language even in our Lutheran confessions the way they speak to uh Emperor Charles v they you know they'll call him things like um Caesar Augustus or they'll call him invincible and things like this and uh, calling him gracious. So you do kind of butter up the the leaders that you speak to. Uh, but what Tertullus does here, or Tertullus does here, is he lies. He, uh, I mean, he calls the most excellent uh, Felix, which, yeah, okay, you would do that for a governor. Um, but then he claims that he has made reforms to the nation that have brought peace. And then uh, after he, he, he talks about all the successes that Felix has. He then brings Paul in as if Paul is now this, you know, pebble in the shoe, this uh, this uh, clog in the gears who's messing up the success and the advancements that Felix is making. And that's just simply not true. Uh, So historically, Felix is actually a very controversial figure. Uh, I mean, obviously, he tried to keep peace. He all tried to keep peace, but he failed. And he was eventually removed from office. And there were uh, delegates from Judea who went to Rome to complain to Emperor Nero at the time. So Nero is not emperor yet. uh, uh, But uh, uh, and they they want him to be punished. And according to Josephus, he was uh, spared being put to death because of his brother. So his brother was an influential uh, leader in, in Rome who prevented him from being put to death. Uh, but he caused actual great turmoil, and uh, he's said to be partly to blame for the Jewish revolt that happened about six years after he left office. Uh, so the idea that uh, Felix is this very successful uh, leader who is bringing peace and tranquility to Judea, and now Paul is this rebel rouser who is jeopardizing the hard-fought peace uh, of Felix is just simply not true. Uh,
0: and it's really laughable. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about what, sorry, well, go, go ahead and talk a little bit about what Tertullus then says about Paul in, in the ESVs. Tertullus says he's a plague. Uh, go into some of those accusations. Tertullus yeah. Makes I mean,
1: this is a, a plague, a pest, a troublemaker. Uh, these are different ways you could translate that word uh and uh he's saying that he is stirring up riots among the jews throughout the world and by world he means the roman uh the roman empire that's the the world uh the economy and then uh, and he's a ringleader of the sect of the nazarenes so there are a few things in here first around the world i mean this is kind of an interesting accusation uh i mean it, it it's, it's almost as if they are saying, well, really, he needs to be brought to Rome because he's a uh, he's a problem for the emperor, not just simply for you, which is come to think, I, I just, just thought of this now, it's kind of like what the Jews, we see lots of parallels with, with Jesus and Pilate here, but it's kind of like what the Jews were saying to uh, Pilate. They say, well, you know, he's making himself king, and whoever makes his, himself a king is opposing Caesar. So, you know, if you don't crucify him, then you're no friend of Caesar's. So that's kind of what he's presenting. He's like, you know, he this guy he came to Jerusalem, but he's been in other places and he's been causing trouble in all these places. And then they say that he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now the Nazarenes are, are Christians, Jesus of Nazareth so they're followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what what trouble are the Jews, or, or the Christians causing? There is there are peaceful people. Um, so now there are violent things that happen, and we see this both in the Book of Acts and also in Paul's letters. He'll he'll repeat these things about the many stonings that he endured. Uh, how he there there were riots, right? There were riots uh, in Ephesus. Uh, there were riots uh, where uh, where they think that he's a god because he heals someone. Uh, there there are several riots that do involve Paul being arrested and beaten and and almost killed, uh, but it's not Paul raising a riot. It's other people who are reacting to Paul's teaching, whether it's the silversmith who's upset that people aren't gonna be buying their uh, their their idols anymore, or whether it's magicians who are upset that people aren't following their uh, magician, uh, their, their you know, pretty much devil worship and going for their uh, the spells that they make. Uh, or whether it's someone upset that he cast out a demon from their servant, or whether it's the Jews who are just upset that he is uh, bringing people away from from their uh, from their persuasion within the the Jewish uh, background. So, and this well, then again will lead to Paul's defense. He, it's called a sect. So, uh, when he answers, he is very swift, and it's it's just like a, a left and a right. He knocks out the idea that he is some sort of a rebel rouser. He's no danger to Rome, which is actually what uh, uh, what the the tribune said, uh, that he, he there's no reason to arrest him. There's no reason to imprison him, and he doesn't deserve death. Uh, this is just a religious matter. And then he gets into the religious matter, which Felix should actually know well of because he's married to a Jew and he is the leader of a Jewish population. Uh, and that Paul... Is actually a follower of, of the Jewish faith. Um, he's the, the, the Nazarenes, as they're called, are not a sect. They're actually what the mainline Jewish faith should be. He follows the prophets. He follows the law. Uh, and uh, if you actually believe in the scriptures, then you will be a Christian.
0: When, when Paul gets labeled a plague or as you know, one who stirs up riots, it strikes me that he, he falls in line with a number of the prophets. In my mind, my mind goes to the prophet yeah. Elijah, whom Ahab calls the troubler of, of Israel. And, and Paul faces a similar accusation. And, but as you pointed out, it's not the prophets and the apostles who are actually causing the trouble. They're proclaiming the word of God, and they're doing so faithfully. It's those who refuse to believe God's truth. They're the ones that are actually causing the trouble. But because they don't like what's being preached, they accuse the truth of being the trouble. And it's just amazing how it it flip-flops. And again, that you see Paul in that same line. You
1: see lots of parallels. You'll see parallels with Paul and Jesus. You'll see parallels with Paul and the prophets. And and we look at that. So uh, Ahab calls Elijah a troublemaker. Well, what what did Elijah do? I mean, he caused it not to rain for three and a half years. Well, it's such a silly accusation because how can Elijah make it not rain? I mean, what, God was the one who made it not rain. I mean, he just used Elijah and made uh, to show that the words of Elijah are true. Uh, and, uh, and we see this with, with Paul, too. I mean, did Paul cause these uh, the silversmiths and the goldsmiths to be poor because he convinced people to not buy their idols? Well, no. I mean, he's he's preaching the truth. I mean, if there were another reason for the people to not buy their idols, would they have the right to riot and then blame someone else? Uh, and and this goes with all of these things. Paul is never violent. Uh, he never stirs up trouble. All he does is speak the truth. And people will blame the troubles that they think are a result of that on him. And then they start rioting. They resort to violence and uh it's and we, we see this very very well in Paul's defense um he gives a time frame i mean he he really does does himself justice as a good as a good lawyer they say that uh he who represents himself in court has a fool for a client and i don't think you can call paul a fool i think he he <laughs> defends himself very well
0: Let's go ahead and read Paul's defense then. That picks us up in the text with verse 10 now. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation, and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day that takes us through verse 21 that's Paul's defense so paul is not what how did what's the saying pastor price that you said the one who represents yeah. himself has a yeah, fool for right. a client that doesn't apply to paul why why doesn't it apply to well, paul well because he is uh
1: he's he's short and direct and truthful and he doesn't get sidetracked he he uh addresses what he's been accused of and uh he does it without you know, he doesn't get caught up with, you know, ad hominem attacks or anything like that, either against him or toward his opponent. Uh, so what's their accusation? They say, well, that he is a rebel rouser. He says, OK, well, I didn't have time to be a rebel rouser. <laughs> He's like, it's been 12. It's been uh, 12 days uh, since I was in Jerusalem. And you can look at the records, I mean, uh, and find all the things I've done. Like, I have an alibi for for each day. Now, what's interesting about that is we don't... I mean, we there are discussions of how you count the days. So, let's see here. Is at the beginning... Yeah, the beginning of this chapter, it says, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down. Uh, so, we have those five days. And then we have... He, he gets to Jerusalem. He meets with... Uh, it's a Peter and James. And then he does the seven days for the... Uh, for the, the rites of purification for the vow and then he gets arrested and then he has the the day with the the council and then overnight he is uh he is brought over to caesarea and then there are questions of how long it will have taken him to get to caesarea. So there are different debates. So I read one where they said that it would have been on the fifth day of his vow and he wouldn't have finished the seventh seven days. And that's when he was arrested. But then, uh, uh, Lenski, he says that the five days of him being, uh, in transport and in custody in Caesarea don't count for the 12 days. So he says that Jesus, that, not, sorry, Jesus, that Paul, uh, when he says 12 days, he's talking about 11 days that he is in Jerusalem. Either way, that's not, That's not all that important. The point is he has an alibi. He says, you can go and talk to all the people that I was with. Mm -hmm. Uh, This isn't an actual great task. And you can see that I did not cause any trouble. I didn't rebel rouse uh, or anything. And uh, uh, he didn't dispute with any crowds. He didn't stir them up, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Uh, And then he says, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. I think there he's referring to uh, him profaning the temple. And what that has to do is uh, they saw him with Trophimus and Ephesian, uh, earlier in the day, and they claimed that he brought him into the temple. So they said he's bringing Greeks into the temple. And he says, well, they have no evidence that he did that. Well, why would Paul say they have no evidence except to say, I didn't do that. I'm innocent. So he addresses the charges against him that would make him a danger to the Roman government, because frankly, the Roman government doesn't care really about these disputes within the, uh, the Jewish religion. But then what he does is he addresses the accusation that he is a sect. And he says, well, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So this uh, does two things for Paul. One is it shows that, hey, listen, legally, what you're dealing with is an argument within the Jewish faith, which you guys have accepted. You Romans have accepted us. This is our faith. This is our teaching. uh, And you have no reason to be concerned about what I'm now teaching because I'm I'm not inventing a new religion that is going to... Uh, threatened the Roman uh, rule. Uh, this is uh, this is within the the Jewish faith. The other thing he's doing is he's opening up his opportunity to uh, to evangelize to Felix himself and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, who uh, is going to judge the just and the unjust on the last day. And when I say that he's he's presenting. You know, the Nazarene religion, the Christian religion as as the Jewish faith. I'm not saying that Christianity and Judaism are the same religion. or We worship the same God. I don't want anyone to be confused by that. Uh, what I'm saying is that Christianity, the what they call the sect of the Nazarenes, is the religion of the Old Testament. We are the true followers of the prophets of the Old Testament, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are the heirs of their faith. And uh, so that's that's the point there. And then also this becomes an important uh, factor in the early Christian church because you, you, if you're familiar with uh, Christian persecution in the early church, you'll know that what they are accused of is is atheism. Uh, so Polycarp was a famous uh, uh, early Christian bishop and martyr uh, who was killed when I believe he was 86 years old or something like that. Uh, he's accused of of being an atheist, and the he's told to renounce the atheist. So he points at the the crowd of pagans. He says, "I renounce the atheist." Uh, well, why did they call Christians atheists? Well, because they didn't worship the pagan gods. So what's interesting historically is the Jews also didn't worship the pagan gods, but they were kind of like, okay, fine, because there's a lot of history that goes around this. But they pretty much uh, much of the time said to the Jews, okay, we're not going to we're not going to bother you right now. You have your cities, you have your regions uh, and you're not going to you're not going to be doing the sacrifices that we tell you to do. Okay, so fine. You can worship your one God, but nobody else can. Everyone else has to worship the pagan gods. Everyone else has, has to contribute, they have to pay homage, they have to offer incense, when we tell you to offer incense to the emperor. So as long as the Christians were seen as just one of the Jews, they could escape uh, persecution often. But once the argument w- was made that, no, these aren't just Jews, and this is what the Jews would actually do, they would, uh, the, the, uh, those who follow Judaism, they say, "Hey, no, they're not just Jews. This is a new religion, and they are a sect, and they're dangerous to Rome." That's when they would uh, be persecuted. So, I mean, that's a little bit of an oversimplification, uh, but it is—it was part of the things that the Christians had to deal with early on. That the Rome there wasn't freedom of religion, and uh, and uh, it was advantageous for the Christians to be thought of as just other Jews, because the Jews had their you know, grandfathered uh, status as monotheists, uh, but Rome didn't actually want a bunch of other monotheists popping up. Mm-hmm.
0: So Paul is bringing all of these facts to bear as he defends himself before Felix. We're going to pick up more of this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about Acts chapter 24 with Pastor James Preuss. We'll be right back. Please stick around. To Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, June 28th. We're studying Acts chapter 24, verses 1 to 27, with Pastor James Preuss. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we were looking at Paul's defense. You made the point how Paul showed that the case that has been brought against him is there's no truth to it all. He's not done what they have said he's done. He's also opened the door for evangelizing Felix later on, as we will see in the text, by bringing up the fact that what he is preaching, what Paul is preaching, is actually the true continuation of the Old Testament and not what his opponents are bringing up, that they are the ones that are actually the sect. They're the ones who have veered off the path the Old Testament laid down. And Paul, in preaching Christ, he is the one that continues the true religion from the Old Testament. Then in verse 17... Paul picks up the account of what happened in Jerusalem again, and, and even mentions there are some people there that should be there that aren't, the Jews from Asia. How does Paul round out his defense before Felix in verses 17
1: through right. 21? Well, I mean, this is something that uh, falls under Jewish law, but then also the Roman law as well. I mean, in Jewish law, in the Old Testament, uh, you can't charge someone, or you can't find someone guilty, at least, without the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, and so no charge can be accepted except by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, and that's the way it's working in Rome too. I mean, if you're going to be, if you're going to be fair, it's the way it works in any uh, just court system. Uh, so you have this this professional talker, this tertu- Tertullus, and he gives these accusations. And then you have the Jews all joined in in the charge. So it gives the appearance of corroborated evidence. It's kind of like what uh, the chief priests did to Jesus when they have all these different witnesses come. Of course, you know, the evangelists tell us that they were conf- conflicted in their reports, but they want to have the appearance of evidence where, hey, look at all these witnesses bearing witness and uh, just don't pay attention that you know they didn't actually they weren't actually there, and that uh, they they're just saying something that they heard someone say that they that heard they heard someone say, uh, or that their witness conflicts. Well, Paul, I mean he just says you know the people who I talked with aren't even here, so I wasn't causing a uh, uh, I wasn't causing a riot. I did talk with people, but you know the we weren't causing a fight, and those people I talked with. Aren't even here, I and mean, they should be here accusing me, and they're not. So uh, th- this whole thing is what they call a kangaroo court. Uh, earlier in, in chapter, is it chapter twenty-three that they do this, where the, he's before the council. Yeah, and then he he starts talking about how he is uh, uh, that he believes in the resurrection. He sees that there are. Two factions here. You have the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. You have the Pharisees who do believe in the resurrection. He says, "Hey, I I believe in the resurrection. I'm on tr- I'm on trial here because I believe in the resurrection." So then, w- then of course, there's this great big fight, and then they have to pull Paul out of there. I'm like, oh well, they're not getting anywhere. Uh, this is just a religious dispute. And you know, uh, the, the Tribune can see that there are Jews defending Paul because they say, "Well, maybe an angel spoke to him." Uh, so that's, so then what do they do? Okay, well, we're going to just, we're going to meet again and we're not going to let any of those Pharisees who believe in the resurrection come. Well, it's just absurd. I mean, could you imagine that it's like having, it's like being put on trial and let's say there are 18 jurors and, uh, you know, nine of the jurors say, you know what? I think that he's innocent and he's made some really, really good points and this guy's not guilty. And they say, okay, all right, well, we're just going to convene later. Uh, and we'll tell you where we're going to meet later. And then they only tell the nine jurors who thought that he was guilty when they're going to meet again. And then they meet again. Oh, now now that we got rid of those nine pesky jurors who thought that that he was innocent, now we can have a real fair trial. It's a complete sham. Uh, so Paul's Paul's pointing that out, uh, and it should be clear as day to anyone that this is not a fair trial.
0: Uh, so then, uh, or yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I- just briefly, Pastor Price, if I can, just I mean I love the way that Paul is able. You know, you said he's not a, a fool for a client by any means, because of the way that he he's so able in terms of making what I would call a legal defense in terms of the way the Roman court is going to work, and also bring in the theology at the same time. It's it's such a, a marvelous example of of the Lord fulfilling His promise that Paul will bear testimony about. Him about his name before these these rulers. It's just it's a marvelous. thing. It is. I mean, and he
1: does this from the very beginning. If you remember when he's arrested in the in the temple, they're about to flog him. It's kind of interesting. They're going to examine him by flogging, which is like I don't know. That doesn't seem like a very efficient way to examine someone. I mean, maybe it's efficient. I don't know if it's very accurate. But then he just they they rip open his clothes. They're about to flog him, and he turns to the centurion and says, "Is it lawful to flog?" A Roman citizen, without a trial, and then they're like, "Oh wow, he's a Roman citizen," and then and that's when he he gets out of that, and there they start treating him with a little bit more respect. So yeah, Paul does this throughout, but he's not just uh, he's not just playing games. He's not playing legal games. He's not listening to his lawyer and just doing whatever his lawyer says, uh, even if it goes against his conscience, which is what happens today in court. You'll have Uh, you'll have people who are put on trial uh, and they want to say something that would actually be the Christian thing to say. And they don't because the lawyer says, oh, just don't say anything. This is what you can say. This is what you can't say. Uh, So that's not what Paul's doing. When he says, you know, I am on trial here because of respect to the resurrection of the dead. He's not just hoping that, hey, maybe there's some some Pharisees in the crowd who will start yelling in my defense and and get me out of this. He is telling the truth. The only reason they are attacking him is because he confesses that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if they were real Jews, if they actually believed what the prophet said, they would be rejoicing and want to learn more uh, about this Jesus who rose from the dead, because that's what the prophet said would happen. Uh, and of course now he has this opportunity to, to speak to Felix and later he'll have the opportunity to his wife as well. And then later he'll have the opportunity to, uh, to meet and to evangelize with Festus. Uh, so, I mean, for us, I mean, the idea of going to jail for two years would be devastating for us, but for Paul here, he is, he has this opportunity to preach the gospel and he cherishes any opportunity he has to preach the gospel.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, and he does it so clearly. Of course, by the the help of the Holy Spirit, the Lord promised his apostles they would receive the Holy Spirit, and he would give them words to speak. That's happening right here for Paul before Felix. We pick up the text again in Acts chapter 24, now in verse 22. Paul has finished his defense, and now Felix responds. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. That takes us to the end of Acts chapter 24. Pastor Price, talk a little bit about Felix now and the way that he responds. What I mean, Luke gives us some background information. How does how does Felix respond to what he hears Paul well, say? Well, Felix is a a really is really a
1: worthless guy. Uh, first, he doesn't say anything. He just says, "Okay, well, I'll, uh, I'll I'll wait until Lysias comes and I'll discuss it." Well, he already knows what Lysias has to say. Lysias told him that he sees no. Uh, he, he he sees no cause to imprison him or to put him to death. And this is just a religious matter. So he already has all the information he needs uh, and he should let Paul go. But as we see at the end, there are two, two things going on. One, he's hoping that Paul will pay him money. And the other is that he wants to uh, do a favor uh, for, for the Jews. So he keeps them in, in prison. So everything Felix does is political in the worst way. He's not seeking justice. He's not seeking the truth. I mean, he doesn't even have to be a believer to do what is at least outwardly right. Uh, he could just simply say, okay, well, yeah, there's no evidence that he has committed a riot. We don't just stick people in prison uh, on you know trumped up charges without any evidence. So we're going to let him go. He could do that without even acknowledging the gospel that that Paul preaches to him but then when Paul does preach the gospel when he preaches to him about the faith about righteousness self-control uh and the coming judgment well then Felix gets alarmed he get he doesn't he gets uncomfortable uh so then he d- then he sends him away which is something that I think people people should be very aware of this like why don't you go to church what makes you stop going for a while uh, is it because something was said to you that made you alarmed? And why did it alarm you? I mean, are you going to try to pass it off as, oh, well, you know, someone at church said something to me or uh, or the the pastor uh, looked at me wrong or, uh, or I've just been busy or whatever excuses people use. Uh, I mean, if it's something that has alarmed you because of the word of God, then you need to confront that. You're not going to, you're you're not gonna have any benefit from ignoring it or pretending that it doesn't happen. But that's what Felix does. He's he's clearly has a guilty conscience. He clearly sees that he is a that he is an evil man and that he is liable to judgment before God, and he doesn't want to deal with it. So he sends him away. And then after his feelings are calmed down, after he's able to numb his conscience, probably with wine and and uh, flattery and other, uh, and other luxuries that he enjoys as governor, then he sends him in again to talk to him, hoping that, oh, maybe he'll give me some money, and then I can... Uh, so pretty much there is a price. Like it, it, uh, the, the favor from the Jews uh, is only worth so much to him. Uh, so, I mean, chapter 24 of Acts doesn't make Felix look very good. He, he looks like he's greedy, he's lady, lazy, he is unprincipled. Uh, and uh, he hears the gospel preached, and it makes him uncomfortable. So he just says, okay, be quiet. I don't want to hear it anymore.
0: Mm, yeah, about the only thing that he seems to get right, or at least it seems somewhat just, is the fact that he, when he keeps Paul in prison, although, as you said, he shouldn't, but when he does, he at least gives him a little bit of liberty to have some of his friends come and go and, and attend to his needs. That's the, about the only Yeah positive thing I think you see from Felix in this whole And
1: and that seems to be the case in his imprisonment um, both in Caesarea and in Rome. Uh, Because at the end of this uh, book of Acts, he's imprisoned in Rome for two years, and it says he's not hindered in his receiving people and preaching to them the word of God. And even where he is uh, imprisoned here, where does it say it? Uh, It doesn't say that he is in uh, Herod's uh, praetorium um or is that another another spot that he says that
0: that's in the in the end of chapter oh, 23 Oh, of chapter
1: 23. Okay. Okay. Um well anyway, he he uh oh yeah, okay. So that's in Caesar Is that in Caesarea then? Let's see here. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's in Caesarea. Yes. So uh so he's in a palace then. He's not he's he's probably not chained up the way he was uh, when he was in um, Philippi or something like that. So he goes to prison lots of times and he's been put in chains lots of times. It kind of seems that this is more of a house arrest. It's kind of like a white collar uh, prison. It's like going to prison in, in Norway versus going to prison in, uh, uh, in the United States. <laughs> I, I, I read a, a news article one time that in Norway, like, their prisons is pretty much like going to camp uh, and uh, it's, it's not really that bad. So I
0: don't know. All right, okay, all right. Talk talk a little bit more about what it is that Paul says to Felix. I mean, Luke tells us that he would speak about faith in Christ Jesus, and I, you know, think that's pretty plain. But then he also says Luke also tells us that Paul reasoned about three things: righteousness, self control, and the coming judgment. What? What are these things, and what, what is it about these things that are alarming Felix's conscience? Well, I
1: think the best way to deal with this is to look at what Paul says in his epistles about these topics. So righteousness, uh, you know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. When you look at the first uh, three chapters of Romans. We see that none is righteous; no, not one. Uh, that uh, that God's wrath is, is come upon uh, all the ungodliness uh, and, and unrighteousness of sinners. So, uh, when you look at what what does it mean to be righteous? Well, you're either righteous by doing the works of the law, uh, or you're righteous through faith. Well, no human being will be justified that is declared righteous by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So I think what he's doing when he starts talking about righteousness is he first is going to show uh, Felix, as he does, does in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, that he is not righteous. If he wants to be righteous, then he should be following the law. He should Love the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, and mind. He should love his neighbor as himself. As ruler, he should be carrying out justice. He should be seeking to do what is, what is right. Uh, there's, there's actually a beautiful word that's used uh, by uh, Tertullus uh, in verse 4, where he says, uh, But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. And the word that he uses for kindness is epikeia, And epikeia, uh is sometimes translated as kindness. Sometimes it's translated as reasonableness. Uh, it's also translated as equity. Now, if you've been paying attention to what's going on in academia and what's going on in our government uh, and uh, in, in the media, Equity is a very polarizing word right now. And uh, you're even getting a lot of conservatives and Christian conservatives who are speaking out against the word equity. Uh, now, that's not good. However, uh, they're not 100% wrong either. Uh, equity, the word, has been greatly misused. Equity, uh, what it means is to deal with someone with charity, with kindness. So, and this is, equity is an important uh, attribute of a ruler, that you should not simply follow the strict letter of the law, but follow the spirit of the law. Uh, it's just because someone has committed a crime doesn't mean that he need that every single time that person needs to receive the maximum sentence. A judge can exercise leniency. For example, if someone steals uh, a small amount to feed his family, should he be punished? Yeah, he should be punished. Does he necessarily need to go to jail for the rest of his life? Well, no, he doesn't. Uh, so we, we see examples of this in the Old Testament. If you look up the word equity, uh, God deals with us in equity all the time and we rejoice that he deals with us with equity. He recognizes that we are sinners. Uh, even the, the very gospel, I mean, he, he knows our frame. Uh, he knows that we are but dust. Uh, this also shows his equity. So uh, Tertullus is a scoundrel, obviously, but he uses this great word, epiekeia, equity, uh, kindness. Uh, which is actually something that a ruler should have. And I think what what Paul points out in his discussions with Felix is that he doesn't have that. And that actually makes him unfit to be a ruler. So in in today's context, I mean, equity has pretty much been used to say that if you have one person who is disadvantaged or supposedly disadvantaged because of Uh, his upbringing or because of who his parents were or uh, or something like that. I have another person who is supposedly privileged because of his upbringing or because of what his parents, who his parents were uh, or are. uh, Then it's the responsibility of the government or of whichever institution is uh, is is at play, whether it's a university or 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 an industry, a job, or or a business, that they should favor the one over the other. So favor the disadvantaged one over the uh, advantaged one, the privileged one, in order to give them uh, more equal uh, outcomes. So that's what is pretty much said to be what is equity today. That's not actually what the word means. The word means that you are charitable, that you're kind, that you're looking at the spirit of the law, uh, uh, and and uh, letting that guide you more than just simply the 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 letter of the law. And what is the spirit of the law? Well, love is love your neighbor as yourself. Love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, every commandment is summed up in this one word: love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so that would be one one thing. Self control. Uh, I guess I went I went on, on for a bit longer than I was planning on. Equity. Uh, Self control. Uh, This is something that Felix clearly doesn't have. He is hoping that Paul will give him money. Uh, He clearly is seeking after the passions of this, of this life. Uh, If he is a typical, you know, higher class uh, Roman, he is probably engaging in drunkenness and sexual morality and all of these other things that uh, Paul is now telling him. No, you actually have to control have control of your body. Jesus says, "Whoever sins is a slave to sin," and uh, St. Paul teaches in his epistles that uh, that, we, that we are uh, having been slaves to sin, we are set free that we may be slaves of God. So I think when he's preaching about self-control, he's teaching Felix that he's a slave to his passions, which of course is going to make uh, Felix uncomfortable. And then he talks about the coming judgment. Now this is very um, bold of, of Paul. Paul is on trial. Every single time he opens his mouth to Felix, the words that he say can and will be used against him in the court of law. There's no such thing as like, Oh, this is off the record. Whatever he says to Felix is going to determine how Felix is going to decide in his case. And what does Paul do? He says, Hey, listen, Felix, you're actually not the final judge. You can be removed by uh, Caesar any day. And, uh, Eventually, you're going to die and not be in charge anymore. But there is a judge who will never die, and that's Jesus Christ, who's risen from the dead. And he's going to judge the just and the unjust. And that's what you should be more concerned about. You should be more concerned about how you will stand before Christ Jesus than how I stand before you. Now, I don't think Paul said those exact words, but if that, this is the message that, uh, that Felix is receiving. That, uh, that there is a much greater judgment. So these are things that are going to make him uncomfortable. And the reason why he's uncomfortable with it is because he does not believe that Jesus Christ is his savior. He doesn't recognize that the point of all of this is uh, that Jesus has come to save the whole world from their sins, not just the Jews, uh, but all people. And that includes Felix. Uh, so it's, it's actually a very tragic thing. I mean, we're thinking, you know, we're following Paul. We've been following Paul since chapter mm-hmm. 13, right? Well, I guess chapter 9 is when he has his conversion. But chapter 13 is when it really just starts following Paul. Uh, and we don't want him to be in prison. I mean, we all know the end of the story. But we don't want him to be in prison. We want him to be free. Uh, but there is actually a much greater thing going on here. And this is a person's eternal soul. Felix is dead now. but His soul still exists, and his body will be raised from the dead. Uh, so the discussions that Paul is having with Felix are are of eternal consequence.
0: Yeah. yeah. And in that way, Felix is a very tragic person in the narrative because he has this great opportunity to listen to, I mean, the apostle to the Gentiles is right there teaching him personally and he rejects yeah. him. I, Felix, in in some respects, reminds me of of Herod, who who beheads John the Baptist, who who enjoyed listening to John, but didn't believe what John preached. And and you get the, I mean, of course, Felix, you know, he wants that bribe. There seems to be some a willingness, at least, to listen and engage to Paul, but he won't believe. And so it it is a tragic case that that Felix has. We have about two minutes here, Pastor Price, to help us help us wrap things up. And and maybe the way to do that is to go back to what Paul says in verse sixteen. About his clear conscience toward God and man—that's what Felix lacks. How does how does this text give us the the clear conscience that we ought to have? Oh, that's God a great, that's brilliant. Good job. That's a great way to close
1: this close this up. You know, I was reading uh, recently about how Paul was. Uh, I, I was I was explained to my adult instruction class about how Paul doesn't consider all any of his righteousness that he. Even though he is, uh, you know, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he is blameless according to the law. Uh, he's very zealous. Uh, he counts it all as loss that he might have Christ Jesus and be found not with the righteousness of his own, but that which comes in uh, comes from faith in, in Christ Jesus. Uh, and, and how wonderful this is! That Paul, who is so much better than all of us, uh, doesn't count his good works as his righteousness. It's not the, it's not he who works. The the one who works is uh, wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, his faith is, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. But what's funny about this is the same Paul also says that he's the chief of sinners and that he is the worst of all the apostles because he persecuted the church. And yet still he is righteous. so uh, Paul does have a good conscience. Why does he have a good conscience? It has nothing to do with himself. it has to do with Christ. Uh, he's not claiming himself to be better uh, than than anyone. Uh, what he is claiming is that his confession is true and that he is he has been faithful to Christ Jesus. So I really think it's an interesting thing about Paul. On the one hand, he'll say, I am better than all of you. And yet I will throw that all away, count it as rubbish, because it's no good in the eyes of God. My righteousness is Christ. And then he'll also say, I'm worse than all of you. And yet it doesn't matter because Christ Jesus is my righteousness. And that clear conscience, that righteousness that is not his own, but is given to him by Christ uh, which which Christ gave to him, uh, even when he was in bloodlust seeking to destroy Jesus's Christians, uh, this righteousness Paul would give to Felix, and he'd give it to Ananias, and he'd give it to wh- whomever will listen. Uh, so yeah, that's a that's a great way to to conclude this. Uh, what's better, to be set free in a human court, but to have a guilty conscience? Or to be imprisoned unjustly, but to have a clear conscience before God for eternity. Uh, And I think it should be obvious that the latter is preferable, to have a clear conscience before God. And the only thing that gives us that is Christ Jesus, who died for our sins, who rose again for us, and will indeed judge the living and the dead, and all who trust in him will enter into eternal life.
0: Pastor James Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa, helping us today with Acts chapter 24, verses 1 to 27. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being Thank our you. guest today. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts 24, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.